Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. If your definition of an awesome vacation includes wildlife and wild places, then I'm sure you daydreamed of traveling to the Amazon. Maybe you're even one of the lucky few that have been there. Boat rides along the Amazon's many rivers to observe a mighty jaguar prowling the riverbanks, hiking through the rainforest to see giant anteaters, binoculars pointed high in the canopy to spot countless birds hidden in the trees. While these experiences are highlights in anyone's life, we must ask the question, how do we protect the keystone species whose presence in the Amazon ensures that this wildly important ecosystem stays functional? In this episode, I'm chatting with Bridget San Marco, co-founder of Save the Giants. Bridget is a zookeeper and absolutely fell in love with giant otters early in her career. She wanted to do more for wild otters and went on a search to find an organization working diligently to conserve the species. When she didn't find one, she connected with other otter lovers and co-founded Save the Giants with fellow conservationist Christina Ward. Now they're working with indigenous communities in Guyana to conserve not only the giant otter, but other South American icons as well, like jaguars and giant eaters. Their approach to conservation is different than many wildlife nonprofits, and I hope more organizations adopt Save the Giants practices. I barely knew anything about giant otters until this conversation, and I had a blast learning from Bridget, and I hope you will too. Be sure to stick around until the end to hear this week's question. If you enjoy this episode, share it on your Instagram stories and tag Rewildology. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you're listening. These are the best ways to help the show grow and let others discover the incredible guests working so hard to conserve and rewild our planet. All right, everyone, on to my conversation with Bridget. Awesome, Bridget. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me about the super cool species that we're going to get into today. Holy crap. New country. I haven't even had a chance to talk to about this area of the world yet, so... Mm, we're gonna we're gonna dive in deep, but before we get all the way to today with giant otters and Guyana and everything, most people haven't even heard of this species, let alone work with it. So tell me about your journey. How did you get to today, where you are working to conserve giant otters? Wow, really long story to get to there. Not too long. <laughs> we can go through I, all uh, of it. Whatever you yeah, want to we'll share. All of it. <laughs> giant otters are awesome. They're the longest of the 13 different species of otters. And most people think of sea otter or North American river otter when they think of otters. They don't think that, oh my gosh, there's that many different kinds of otters and they're all over the place. So usually the one, first question I get is, oh, is this the kind that holds hands? No, you're <laughs> all on sea otters. Giant otters are way better. They spoon instead of holding hands. So much better. But They cuddle for real. <laughs> they actually cuddle. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm on top of being a biologist with Save the Giants and um, co-founder of that organization, I'm a zookeeper too. And I've been in the zoo field for, oh goodness, like almost 19 years now. So I grew up in an aquarium back at home where I'm from, which was a Long Island aquarium, spent 10 years there. And when I was there, I thought I was going to work 
marine mammals, like pinnipeds for my life. thought that was my passion. And then I moved to Texas and started working at a place called Moody Gardens. It's really cool environment, became a rainforest biologist instead of marine mammals and started working with giant otters there. And then I fell madly in love with giant otters just from working with them realized that there's only about one to 4,000 giant otters left in the wild. They're critically endangered. And looking around for conservation efforts to try and help them out, I couldn't really find anything. So I was like, well, that's just not right. We need to do something about that. So talking to other giant otter keepers from all over the place, they put me in touch with somebody else who was thinking all the same exact things that I was. And we joined forces and created Save the Giants. And uh, yeah, now it's a really cool project. It's all like one health-based, community-based. We work within indigenous communities down in Guyana and uh, work to help out giant otters in as many different ways as possible because it's not just doing research. There's more than just research and conservation. You got to approach it from multiple angles. So I work with uh, giant otters nonstop all day long at my zookeeper job. And then in all my free time and volunteer time at home and then going on trips to um, make sure that Save the Giants is running smoothly and we're getting lots done there. So a little bit of jumping around, spent some time in different areas and different zoos. And then once I got to Giant Otters, fell in love. <laughs> like, this is it. This, this is, is it. <laughs> These ones, they're the best. <laughs> I worked with other otters before Giant Otters. Giant Otters are real cool. <laughs> They're the most social out of all of them. So they just have these huge personalities. It's it's easy to fall in love with one when you meet one. Mm. Well, that was my next question. So so what is so special about them? I mean, you've kind of like spat off a little bit of a few facts about them that are pretty cool, but what is so important about them? So because you know, yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, it's an otter. I mean, yeah, they're cute and cuddly or whatever, but why are they actually this important to this environment to the point where you would found a whole nonprofit? So like, let's go into why these critters are awesome. Yeah. So like, why otters then? Why <laughs> would you focus on that when you're just really worried about habitat conservation? It's because the giant otters are like an indicator species and two different factors. One, they're top predators. So they're a good indicator that the rest of the ecosystem is in balance. If the otters are there, the fish are doing well. If the fish are doing well, everything that lives off of that river ecosystem is doing pretty well too, because there's enough food around. And then on top of that, all otter species are highly sensitive to pollution. So if there's a pollution event in their habitat, they abandon it. They just take off and try and go find somewhere else to live. So also on top of that, if it's easier to see an otter than it is to see something smaller in the food chain. So if you're going out doing like rapid river surveys or other different markers on the habitat, that's something a little bit, I mean, it's not easy. I'm not making it seem like it's easy to find an <laughs> otter, but, but definitely easier than some other different like fish counting or like seeing a lot of other different trends that way. You can check fish quantities through the otter poop too. So, uh, just finding the otters and counting their numbers. And they all are built in with a wonderful system to identify individuals. It's their unique throat patches. So they have a unique design, a unique pattern on their neck called their throat patch. Every individual giant otter has a different one. So we can catalog all of the otters very in, like without being invasive at all. You just can photograph them, put out camera traps, and then put them in a database and track them over 
a period of like their lifetime and see how far are they moving? Are they able to traverse through their habitat? So or is it all interconnected? And then like, where are they going? How long are they living? And just by seeing them over and over again through long-term like photographical studies. So they're really cool for knowing that the ecosystem is clean and healthy and there's no pollution because they wouldn't be there if they're if it wasn't. And then also they're telling you how the health of the rest of the ecosystem is doing. So it's a really good animal to focus on. So save the giants, we call it just giants, not just giant otters, because Guyana is land of the giants. You have the jaguars, you have giant otters, you have the giant anteaters, like a lot of giant animals around there. So even though we focus on otters, we're really looking at everything and the system as a whole, but it's easier to get all those little indicator markers, bioindicators from those giant otters. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That makes total sense. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and they're awesome. Giant yeah. otters are awesome. <laughs> oh my God. This is freaking awesome. Like the cutest thing. The fact they spoon, I'm just, I'm just loving the fact that you told me that they spoon because like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's my awesome. favorite thing to tell guests at the zoo because that's the first question. Are these the otters that hold hands? No, they spoon. <laughs> Way better. <laughs> Oh, that's great. So just, so just to help um, visualize it for us. So what exactly is the ecosystem like that they live in? Just kind of paint a picture for us. So this is an audio format. What does it look like? Yeah. So, so take me on a boat. We're on a boat. Mm-hmm. And what am I looking at with you right now? So it is beautiful, dense vegetation along the river. It's um, a rainforest ecosystem. So you have those depending on where you're at, the rainforest and then the savannas are surrounding the more dense river. So in the rainforest, you have two different seasons. You have your wet season and your dry season. During the wet season, it's really hard to get anywhere because everything is covered in water. It rains so much that the rivers will flood their banks and flood the savannas, which during that time, that's when a lot of the fish are breeding in the grasses of the savannas. That's like their little nursery. And then as the dry season comes, all those now fish that we're breeding are restocking essentially the rest of the river, smaller amounts in a smaller <laughs> area, larger amounts in a smaller area. And uh, so then you can see the otters really well. We like to go down in the dry season because they're all in those heavily stocked rivers during the dry season. But that being said, we survey year round. I just don't personally get to go down there all the time having two jobs. But that's why we work closely with local indigenous communities and we train them how to do the surveys and train them how to do all of the data collection. And they go out once a month for like a week long, every month and we're getting long-term data. They're doing all the project. We're just supporting them. Mm. So it's gorgeous environment. As you get closer to the mountains, you're going to have a lot higher, taller trees. And then as you get lower lying, you get like more like shorter and closer to the savannas versus the big dense rainforest that you think of. But there's primates, there's jaguars, there's ocelot, there's the otters. It's not just the giant otters, it's also neotropical otters that hang out in the same areas. Um, Cayman, anaconda, tons of fish, like beautiful, rich rainforest environment. Guyana's pretty untouched. So, um, a lot of people think of giant otters in Brazil, but they're losing a lot of their habitat in Brazil because there's a lot of people 
and there where Guyana is a little bit more untouched. It's like their last stronghold. So that's another reason why we focus in Guyana because it is their last stronghold. But now what we're starting to see is oil companies coming down into Guyana and starting to try and find places to get oil there. So it's good to have all this information now and start gathering stuff so that way they can take all this data that we collect and come up with land usage programs to mm -hmm. say, okay, we need to preserve these particular critical areas because this is where you see a lot of diversity crossing or this area, not so much, or this area may be okay. And make sure that everybody is thinking about the long-term effects of having oil companies come in versus what's already taking place because it's not smooth sailing everywhere for animals worldwide. I wish it was, but we know better. <laughs> yes, we've all been in this field for long enough to know that everything needs our help right now from yeah. big businesses, especially extractive businesses as the population grows, that's for sure. Ugh. But let's go back to Save the Giants. So yeah. So you co-founded this organization. So it sounds like I Whatever this amazing conversation was that you had, what's, I, I don't know if drinks were involved, but you're like, you're <laughs> fucking amazing. You're amazing. Let's do this. So, okay. Decision has been made to do this. So what did you do next? How did you come up with this idea? Did you or your co-founder already have connections in Guyana? Because, you know, being a yeah. foreign NGO coming into the area, that, I mean, that's pretty hard. It's pretty difficult to get anything started. So how, take me through that process. How did you get established in Guyana and really working with the local communities to save the giant otter? It's a really cool like backstory. So my partner, Christina, she started going to Guyana before I did with a um, professor who took her classes down to Guyana every year. She had been doing it for like 20, 30 years, taking classes in it, but it was an art school. So they were trying to, look at conservation through art, saying that we can write all the scientific papers that we want. Nobody's going to read them. So you have to find other ways to reach people if you want to make an impact. So they would go down and it was a more art-based side of things. And Christina, my partner, is an amazing artist. So she tagged along with this group and made a lot of those different connections and started a little otter project along with it. And then um, as we started going, the project was growing very, very rapidly. And we branched off from being underneath that project through that professor to being our own nonprofit. So we are a 501c3. We found it a couple years ago and have just hit the ground running. But we were able to make a lot of connections and a lot of friends with the locals in the community. And I mean, that's the biggest part is collaboration because we have some of the like side knowledge, but they have that indigenous knowledge, which is just as, if not more important. So you got to team up together and get a whole, like, whole understanding of what's happening in the environment. So yeah, we started as a, it was like kind of art-based and with science going and then starting to get more and more science, but art is still very much part of the project too. How we do most of our funding is through t-shirt sales oh, and nice. like fundraisers and things like that. Christina is a super talented artist and she does all of our designs, like the cute little sweatshirt that I'm wearing right now that has oh my otters God, on yes. it. I'm not ashamed <laughs> to say that all of my wardrobe probably has an otter on it in some form <laughs> or fashion. Um, 
gotta rep gotta yes take those yes. opportunities talk about otters wherever you go oh my god but yeah. uh yeah so a little bit of art and then a lot of science and then getting more and more science and working within the community so it's not just research it's also a wildlife club with the kids in the community and doing outreach and education and doing like domestic pet clinics because you also think about how well covid happened with everybody scary time one health approach is important we got to take care of human health to take care of animal health to take care of environmental health and if that's not all worked in together then you're going to have it fall apart so we do a little bit of everything it's a lot going on at one time Mm. yeah sounds like it yeah Yeah. even like going through your website i mean there's like an education component there's like collaboration and research and stuff so i mean i would love to just start to go through those branches and what exactly they mean Um, So let's just start with the first one, education. What type of education projects are you doing? And is it all like just the local community or is it more on an international scale as well? So what does that branch do of the nonprofit? Yeah, it's all of the above. So we have a um, wildlife club within the community that we base out of, which is Yupakari Village. So it's the Yupakari Wildlife Club. And we come up with lesson plans. So they do something at least every month. We were doing a lot of outings before COVID and then it got more and more challenging, but we bring down like school equipment and coloring equipment and activities. So we're learning in nature. They have an amazing opportunity that they are living in a beautiful environment right there. But some of them have never seen any of these animals themselves and they live there all the time. So we have taken the kids out on the boat with us. They've helped us do um, otter surveys. They've helped, we go bird watching. It's a lot of identifying and learning how to work within the environment and sustainability, um, things that we can learn from each other. And then trying to change some of the uh, perceptions because a giant otter that eats 10 to 15% of its body weight every single day, and then a community that would also eat a lot of fish might say that, oh, those otters are eating all the fish, so there's less fish for us. Not the bigger picture that's taking place right now, which is climate change, unfortunately, and like that rainy dry season cycle we were talking about earlier and how the fish reproduce, all that's kind of thrown off balance right now due to climate change. So the rains aren't coming as much as they would be or at different times, and it's throwing off those breeding cycles of the fish. So in one side, you might say, oh, it's this one's fault. And the other side, I'm like, oh, it's this one's fault. It's easy to just try to point blame something or something quickly. And you're like, oh, the otters are still eating. So something tangible, like something that they can yeah. go out and see. I mean, we do the same thing here in the US. I think everybody's trying to like, it's that fault. I can see that, but. Yeah, so that can happen sometimes. So then you have issues with, or they're overfishing. So then they're trying different technologies to catch more fish. And then the otters get stuck in nets, leaving nets unattended or what have you. There's, there's a lot of different things that go into play. So trying and changing some of those perceptions of the otter through the kids and also through the adults. So we can do things like if we're talking specifically to mothers in the community, we can say about how otters are super sensitive to pollution. And these communities will bathe in the river they do their laundry in the river that's their drinking water it just gets pumped up to their houses if they have a pump or they carry it in buckets 
Um, so you can say, well, if the otter's there, you know the water is safe for you as well. Because if they leave, you should call Indigenous Affairs or you should call somebody to come and test the water because it might no longer be safe for you too. So that's giving them that aspect of saying, oh, the otters are there. I know it's still safe. That's your first line of defense that there was a pollution event that occurred maybe upstream that's not their community, but everything flows down. So it's really looking at who you're talking to and how you change your educational approach to um, make sure we're all on the same page and working together. So we do programs like helping out fishermen's nets if their otters are destroying their nets and they're like upset at the otters and go, okay, well, we'll help you fix your nets or we'll help you do this. Like, or maybe let's come up with a plan that you don't have to leave it unattended your net during the day. So our, um, our good friend, who's the Tushau or the uh, leader of that community, he has been really awesome of saying like, yes, we're going to make sure that we put a rule in place that you can only use this type of net or this size to make sure that we're protecting our wildlife. So fishermen, you talk to one way about fish. Women with children, you talk to you about the health of their family. And kids, you're talking to about how cool these animals are and how we want to keep them around and why they're important and why they're awesome, because they're going to be the conservationists of tomorrow. So we want to make sure they're learning all the things really young. Beautiful. How did you two engage the leader of the community? How did you get that person? I'm assuming a male, but it might be a female. He is a male. Yeah. Uh, How did you get him involved? Which is cool. Oh, in that community, really? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So they, um, he grew up in a wildlife club himself. He's actually pretty young. Even though he's like the village elder, he's a young guy. He's not that old. That's just the term. And so he is also very conservation-based. This particular community that we base out of is a really good place to start because a lot of their income that they see is all through ecotourism. So people coming down and spending money to see things wild and see things untouched. And so they already do um, different research projects out of that community. So it was a great place to start. And then you hear like the community downstream, there's definitely some rivalry. So it's like, oh, in this village, they eat the otters. And you go and you talk to the, that community, like, no, we don't eat otters. What are you talking about? We forget <laughs> these guys, like shoot them. And we hear that these are, it's like all this paddle tail stuff and like little small, like drama. We're like, okay, so what's the real story? What's happening? Um, but yeah, so he is, awesome. He's been on board with the project since day one, but also just knowing that we are there to help and it's their project. It's their project. We're helping support it. So have them take ownership of it. Like the other great thing is we pay them a stipend for all the work that they do. So we're creating jobs that are helping out, keep everything wild and keep everything untouched. And there's a big problem where there's not enough opportunity for employment in these communities. So they are indigenous, they live off the land, they all do some sort of farming, and there's not that many jobs to go around. So it's hard to get come up with an income in some places. So being able to be an employer for them is a, a big bonus for the two show because they want to see their young kids or their young adults having an opportunity to not have to leave the community. 
to be able to stay and live with their families and not have to go off to a bigger city or another country to get any sort of employment. So it's it's nice that we were able to support them and then at the same time, keeping everything wild. Yeah, so none of us on our side, we don't get paid. So like <laughs> myself, you know, the rest of our board, all of this is volunteer. Whenever we go down, it comes out of our own pockets. We save up for our trip. And um, all of the money that we raise is for equipment and our stipends for our guys in the field. Wow. So you're pretty much creating like a whole team of wildlife biologists, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And so we put them through different classes and different programs. There's a, um, we team up with other organizations. So there's one really cool project right now that we are collaborating with. And they have this new like app that's coming out for doing some different like research collecting. So they're going to be doing a class and teaching them how to use that app and how to use this new program. So we're paying our guys to go attend that class and learn how to do it because then it'll be able to trickle down into our project. We could probably use the same things. And if it doesn't even help us, they could use it in future endeavors. Nice. So is, that, is, it, is it going to be like a presence, absence, behavior type data collection um, app? Uh, I'm still learning all about it. This is hmm. like fresh Brand off new. of like my emails. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we're doing this. This sounds really cool. Like we're going to pay our guys to go to this 10 day training class. And also let me find out all about it at the same time. Too. Yeah. It's like, so, like yes, right but like, now, let me learn. <laughs> yeah. But also I need it. My um, husband is a tech genius. He built our coded, our database and also worked on making like, we have a, we're able to fly a drone to do surveys. And then he's working on a program to be able to take that drone footage and find otters from it, which is really cool. Artificial Genius. intelligence type stuff. <laughs> so lucky. So lucky. <laughs> <laughs> like people pay a lot of money for these kinds of things. Yes, they just do. Like, yeah, I'll help you out with your project. That's cool. And um, <laughs> so we have a database already, but if this is another app that might be more mainstream and still get some of the other information some of the same information that we're doing and some other stuff too we'll use it so it'll be it'll be neat to see how this one turns out it's a new new program um i'd have to look it up i don't remember the name of it right off the hand yeah that sounds awesome i would definitely like to keep more more involved with that i just love that more people i, I mean maybe just because it's our generation like the millennial generation is getting and more established positions in conservation. It's like, mm. why are we not using technology? I mean, yeah. every single, not every single, but almost every single other industry is using technology. And it is, oh my gosh, it is like blowing all, the amount of data collection that can happen with one of these tools is yep. infinitely larger than anything that we could do ourselves. So I love to hear that. I mean, I love to hear the fact that your husband knows how to do this stuff is like, yeah. <laughs> and then gold, I get it free. <laughs> gold, gold. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that's another thing that we're teaching them down there is how to pilot drones. So that way oh they're God, flying cool. the drones to go do these surveys. It's less invasive on the animals too, because you're not like making a bunch of boat noise, traversing fast. And on top of that, you have like these beautiful river systems systems and then off of the river you'll have little like ponds and the otters go fish in the ponds and they go fish in all these other different areas little tributaries so you'll have to park your boat get up hike to get over to the pond 
just look around and be like, is there any signs of otter activity? So now what we can do is save some time, some critical time, and send the drone over, say, okay, do we see any signs of otter activity? Should we go check over there or say, nope, let's conserve our energy, keep heading downstream, and then pick another place to go check out by being able to send a drone, take a lot less time, and we're not trekking through jungle, and then find out if we need to or not. Yeah, which can take so much time to do. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Also just talking to locals. Um, we'll be cruising down on the boat. We see a guy fishing. Like, hey, have you seen any otters? They look at you like, what? And you go, water dog. You see any water dog? <laughs> because that's what they call them down there. Either river wolf, water dog. <laughs> or like some will say otter. They usually say water dog. <laughs> and then, oh yeah, yeah, water dog up that way. <laughs> like, okay, thanks. <laughs> Bye, have fun. Oh my gosh, that is incredible. I'm just gonna call them water dogs from now on. That is oh yeah. It's a, <laughs> water dogs is the best. They're like usually in Brazil you hear them say like river wolf more so. And at Guyana it's water dog. Oh my god, I love everything about that. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. Speaking gosh. of water dog, my my dogs are I climbing know. up behind me right now. <laughs> they're coming to say hi. They're joining the they're conversation. Like, hey, I hear you say dog a bunch. This yeah. Gross. They're like, so <laughs> we're just going to come in and just wait for you to give us attention, mom. So. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So let's let's shift to the next pillar of research. I think we've, we've started to get into that. So yeah. what data are you collecting? What is the bigger goal of the research that you are putting out there? And what have you found so far? So right now, if you look at most of the population numbers of giant otters alone, it, the data is all over the place. So there was maybe something that was collected on one trip in one survey XYZ years ago. And they said, that's how many is in this area. And it's, you're like, okay. And so then like <laughs> where Ghana is its last stronghold, if you look in like the written data that's like published in areas, they say there are 35 giant otters in Guyana. We know that's not true at all. There is a lot more than 35 there. So that also comes into play with saying, okay, well, if we think there's only that much, is it really worth putting in the effort to conserve this area? Or should we just burn it for a lumber or drill it for oil or do all those other different things? So being able to say, hey, no, they're here and they're doing really well, this is a good area that we should protect. So land usage is the application there. Because unfortunately, with a lot of things, there's a monetary value to It's wild. just the truth. It's the truth. It's, it's just the truth. It sucks. I hate politics. They're real stupid. But it's just the reality of it is being able to convince the people who are making legislation that this place is worth saving because we have this animal who's protecting the environment. They provide homes for other animals and all that other different stuff. So that's one aspect of it is just trying to get a better handle on how many otters are left. And then, so population surveys, we accomplish that through rapid river surveys, which is just driving a boat, counting all the signs you see, counting otters that you see, putting up camera traps in areas that's not gonna disturb them at all, and then be able to count otters that way. and um, those drone surveys too. And so then we also team up with other organizations. At one point, we were able to collect fecal samples and nice. send those off for um, analysis. 
and find out a lot more information and get some stuff back. And then you can do these long-term genetic studies too through fecals and stuff too to say, okay, well, we have these many otters here. We know that once the otters reach about two to three years old, they get really aggressive with their siblings and their parents because that's their driving force to leave the family group, go off on their own, find and establish their own territory, and then settle down and start a family group of their own. But how far are they going? So we don't know how far do they have to traverse to get away from their family to start their own family. So then finding out, okay, what are those critical markers? How big of an area do you need? What do they need to be able to bypass? So you have like in Brazil, hydroelectric dams, and that might be limiting otters access to traverse through their habitat to get far enough away to come up with their own territory. Or is it okay for them to hang out in closer areas in Brazil if the hydroelectric dams are there? So the other thing with hydroelectric dams is it's limiting migratory fish species from coming into their habitat and then cutting down on their food supply because they hold down a territory. So looking at where they're moving and when they're moving and how far do they go, which we can do that through peoples potentially by finding their latrines, but we can also just do it through those throat patches. Their throat patches don't change their entire life. So if we're expanding our project and expanding our bounds of where we're surveying and we find an otter that, hey, you used to live over here and now you're all the way over there with this otter who was over here and now <laughs> they're all the way over there. So trying to find out that long-term of how much space are they using, not necessarily in their territory, but when they have to leave. So all that information is really important. And then um, behavioral things and other things that come up, I feel like every time we look at one question, we have 10 more. So we're <laughs> the way it goes in science, yeah. you know. Always like, oh man, this can I just answer one question? Can I just answer one question? <laughs> just one. No, <laughs> not that easy. So always learning something new. We're able to like, it's been reported in the past that, oh, maybe because every time a giant otter has a cycle, like a, like their women have a cycle, they say that it's a pseudo pregnancy because they go through all of the exact same hormonal spikes as a pregnancy when they cycle. And so they're like, oh, well, maybe that's evolved for this purpose or that purpose or who knows, but it wasn't necessarily confirmed and seen that the older sibling, female siblings are helping to nurse their young too. So we're able to actually see that in our group because you could say, oh, is it just another one or is it part of the family? So I saw it as a pup, it got older, it's still with the family. And then we had two lactating females in that particular family group. And one was an older sibling and one was the mom and they were both helping to nurse the younger generation. So that's how their numbers can grow more, more established families have more hands on deck to help. So different things like that, like it was just like assumed or said, oh, maybe it's for this. We were able to see that because we are looking at these individuals time and time again and watching them grow up. So really cool stuff like that too. That's that, so cool. Yeah. So cool. I like that. I knew the I knew the pseudo pregnancy <laughs> thing from working in the zoological setting, and you can like look at those hormones and say, oh, it's the pseudo pregnancy. There's no way to they're not pregnant because of X Y Z, or this one wasn't with a male, but they go through the exact same hormone cycles, and it's because of that. It's because the older females will help lactate to help that feed the younger. Amazing. <laughs> 
writer got excited about that too. Oh, he's just like, what's happening? <laughs> like, what do you think? Is mom, that's amazing too. Yeah, so we're we're always finding new stuff. So um, it starts off small, starts off with, okay, how many are there? And then it starts off with, okay, then where do they go? How far do they go? How much land needs protected to protect them, to protect the ecosystem, to protect the whole thing altogether. So how far are you in that research? Is there anything that's going to be published soon? Or how many more years do you think you need to collect before anything like that will be available? Well, I think we're going to be like collecting data forever. Well, but, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you always find more stuff. <laughs> but right now we're um, just starting to compile a lot of our survey data together. And um, we're starting to work on writing the paper at the moment. So just starting to write that paper. But the really cool thing about it too is it's not us writing the paper. We are writing the paper for the most part, but the authors are going to be our indigenous community members who we've trained to do the project. So they will be the authors on the paper. It's up to them. So it's a little bit of different process than you would do for your like, you're going through writing papers and what we're used to. And, oh, you go through this and this and this method. We're adding extra steps. So I have no idea how long it's going to take because it's going to be um, half written and also approved through our team in the field and then approved through their village council and make sure that they are all, all on board with everything that's being put out. And then we'll just be put on there as a contributor or a sponsor of the project, but it is going to be their paper for them to publish. So we're very much in like, this is your project. We are here to support. We're here to help. but we're going to make it your own. And so we're, it might be a little bit longer process than it would normally be to write a paper, but we'll see. That is, I'm excited for it. Seriously. That is beautiful because in this field, and I mean, egos get in the way, you know, sometimes they really do. And the fact that you're like, my paper does, I mean, my name doesn't have to be the first on this paper. Like this is not my area. This is not my country. This is my home. I just love this species. And so that, that just goes to show both of uh, being you and your co-founder, like Christina, like just your hearts and yeah, really in this it for our names. And exactly. Like, nope. These are, our, this is our team. They're awesome. We're going to give them all the supplies that they need. Anything, any questions that they have, we'll help train them, but it's, it's up to them because if we all did conservation in our own backyards, it wouldn't be that bad. So everybody just needs to do a little bit where they're at. And everybody doing a little bit is going to be awesome. Yeah. Gosh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's so cool. Before <laughs> we move on to collaboration, um, last time we chatted, and you briefly mentioned it a second ago. So this database that your husband yeah. has helped build, what is this database? What is in it? What's collected? <laughs> and yeah, let's just go into that. Yeah, database. it's like mystical database that we always reference and talk database. about. <laughs> just like, it's so the cool. database. Like, I love it. Because um, basically, I just told him all the things that I want. Like, I want it to be able to do this. I want it to be able to do that and let him figure out the challenge. So when we're collecting data, we're collecting a lot of photographs of different otters. We're collecting a lot of GPS points. And then what he was able to do is take every GPS point that we collect. And when we put it in the database, it automatically populates on a Google Maps. So we can look at everything. Wow live in satellite on a Google map because he got into Google maps API and coded and worked it into our database. 
And then we can look at a family group and say, enter in the family group and every individual that's in that family group and the dates that they were in it and how long they stayed in it with pictures of their throat patches and then where their territory range is. And then if they're showing up somewhere else, that's showing up as a GPS point too. like, okay, we found this individual who was in this family group and now it's in this group. So you can change its um, history throughout its life and where it was and who it was with. So different things like that. Um, that's the bare bones of it right now. He's always adding more to it. We've added in not just otters, but like their holts. That's what otters sleep in. They dig out the sand from the roots of the trees and make these cool little dens. It's called a holt. So when we see a holt that goes on to the database and we say it's in this one's territory and we can confirm or not like, oh, it was used by this family group. And then like latrines. So otters are also really awesome with their scent communicating. The whole family group goes to the bathroom in a community or a family latrine. And then they do this wonderful behavior where they take their paws and they spread all the poop together everywhere. To, <laughs> <laughs> like finger painting and uh, sprinting, which is why it sounds like paint because it's like they paint it all together and they can detect up to like oh, at least 300 unique chemical markers in that sprint. So they know wow. everything about the otters who were there when they left it. So we record those sprinting um, sites, those latrines as well in our database. So all the different factors, if we see footprints, we can record in there. Like here was a sign of an otter, it was footprints. So all that can be populated onto a map and also in like a word kind of format of, okay, we can look at this otter's history, all of it, where it's been, where it was sprinting, who it was sprinting with. Who like, was sprinting with? Going? <laughs> yeah. Another big question that was around um, for everyone in the community is like, oh yeah, we see the otters in the dry season, but we have no idea where they go in the wet season because there's so much water everywhere. It's hard to see where they're at because they just disappear. They go to different spots and uh, it's hard to get everywhere. So also trying to figure out like, where do they go in the wet season? How far are they leaving? How far are they going? Because they're trying to find fish harder when the water is everywhere versus condensed into like, what is it? Shooting fish in a bucket? Like yeah, kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, trying to answer some of those questions, like where are they going? And those GPS points help out. We have to very much rush over to our camera traps sometimes because the river can increase by like 10, 20 feet in like a couple hours sometimes. Oh my God. How much it rained. And like, <laughs> we're like, oh, quick, save the camera traps. Go out and collect them, please. It's about to rain. They'll know it's raining in the mountains. So it's going to be high the next day. So we'll go out and get them. But yeah, that's basically the database right now. The database is always adding more features to it uh, because the creator coder of it is upstairs right now <laughs> she's like Michael I need it to do this now and he's like okay <laughs> <laughs> oh that is so awesome gosh yeah I'm jealous we'll of that to probably put the drone footage in there eventually so it's it'll be it's gonna be awesome and then we have it as like password protected and stuff because not everybody wants to know where otters are for good reasons. Mm. So we want to make sure that that is secure information and that somebody can't just log into our database and say, oh, there's a family group of otters living here. I need otter for XYZ reason. That's not very nice. And go collect them. Is poaching a big fashion. issue? So it can be. And um, 
for a few different things. They have definitely issue with the illegal pet trade, which is terrifying to think of. These animals get six feet from the tip of their nose to the tip of their tail. Even the smallest of all 13 species of otters can bite through a steel-toed boot. These guys bite through caiman like it's nothing. And biting, wrestling, tackling is all part of their play. They're territorial, like challenging. They spread their poop all over the place everywhere. They <laughs> sound like, like a nightmare. Why people <laughs> want them as a pet. I love them. Do not want it in my house. No. Do not want <laughs> no. So that's, that's definitely a problem in some areas is an illegal pet trade type thing, which blows my mind. Um, throughout the 1950s and 60s, they were hunted to almost extinction for their mm. fur coats. So their fur is very desirable in some areas. It was made illegal in the 70s. Um, however, it wasn't until about 1996, the year 2000, that giant otters actually were considered endangered. And that was because of habitat loss and habitat degradation. But even though they put like, oh, it's not allowed to you know, um, poach otters for their fur, that doesn't mean that illegal activities happen. And then there's also... So there's the wildlife trafficking for pets, maybe for other purposes as well. There's um, different markets that want different parts of their body for different things. Beyond me, I don't understand why, um, but I didn't grow up in a culture where that was that, oh, this is the cure for this, or this is the cure for that. So there's all of that aspect as well. Um, and then mostly though, like issues with fishermen where they think that the Otters are eating all the fish, so they want to get rid of the otters. And then if they get rid of the otters, it throws off the balance of the ecosystem, they have less fish. So then trying to do some of that outreach too. But yeah, there's uh, there's definitely lots of issues. Big ones are pollution and climate change, but humans are a big problem in all of it as well. But yeah, that, therefore you think like a sea otter they are have a really, really thick fur coat to help them keep warm because they live in cold waters on the west coast of the U.S., like California and Canada and things like that. But the giant otters have very thick fur coat too. You're like, well, that doesn't make sense because they're in a tropical rainforest, nice and warm. Why do they need a thick fur coat? One, it waterproofs them. So they have their undercoat and then their guard hairs that lay on top and they trap air in between those layers so that the water doesn't actually touch their skin. It's also pretty oily to help shed some of that water off but their tail isn't quite as furry. So they lose a lot of body heat out of their tail when they're swimming, which is why they still have a fur coat that's nice and dense and warm to help them retain their body heat while they're swimming in the rivers. And then you see them pop up on land, warm up, get nice and fluffy, dry up, <laughs> plenish the air layer in between those uh, hairs in their fur coat. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and then they do it all over again. So they are still trying to thermoregulate by going in and out of the water a whole bunch. Wow. And I, I love that you mentioned the, the fisherman aspect. So how how have you all engaged in that group of people? And have you had any pushback? I mean, how has that gone? Yeah. So, um, gosh, I guess it was 2019. 2019, we did our first ever International Giant Otter Workshop down in Upari. We brought in the International Otter Survival Fund out of Scotland. We brought in an expert who does wildlife clubs in communities from another area. We brought in a neotropical expert from Mexico and then us for giant otters. So a big collaborative event and everybody, all the adults in the community participated. They all came because we were providing food every day as, as one. Yeah. We want people to come to the class <laughs> and say, hey, 
we're going to serve lunch. <laughs> they show up. So uh, <laughs> we pay for the lunch that they probably have snacks and we do movie nights and stuff. But we had everybody all together because it was going to be a nice community event. It was made it really fun. And then we could just sit down there and just have an open forum. Be like, tell me what's your concern. What do you see a problem with? How can I help? How can this information maybe be hurtful or helpful to you? So really just being open forum, being open and collaborating with everybody and saying, tell me your concerns because I'm not here all the time. I don't fish off this river like you do every day. What's your concern with an otter? Do you have a concern with an otter? So kind of like a very open, just verbal survey, essentially. So an opinion survey. And that's when you start to hear the like, well, in Katurka, they eat the otters. Oh, well, in this area, <laughs> they do that. He would never do it. Can we have lunch now? <laughs> Stuff like that. And then, um, so just trying to find out the, a lot of the concerns is, oh, I've had otters get stuck in my net. Or, oh, I've had, I see them eating and different things like that. And being able to approach that and saying, okay, well, they are actually eating a different fish than what you're trying to catch. Like, what fish are you trying to get? okay, they're, they're not eating that necessarily. And I can prove to you because look at their poop. <laughs> and it's got all the scales and the skeletons from the fish that they're eating. And it's not the scales and skeletons of the fish that you are after. And then try to bring in all of those other different things of climate change. And you've noticed, I'm sure that the rains haven't been as much this year, or like they all know because they know that river like the back of their hand, they know the river like the climate the rains and you can sit down and talk to them and be like yeah we we're basically in a drought like it's a problem we don't have enough rain right now or they'll say oh the rains are coming late this year mm. it's it's all off so all this information is just word of mouth knowledge that they know it's that indigenous knowledge that's I think more important sometimes and things that we write down in a paper and being able to get the bigger picture of everything and say okay so tell me what do you need what do you need? We're here to help. So just not going down and lecturing to somebody, just having a conversation is how we're able to build bonds and make friends. And um, they love when uh, we take their kids to go and have free time all afternoon. And then <laughs> they're like, them. yes, babysitters. Yeah, babysitters. <laughs> <laughs> take them. I want yeah. my evening free. Like, go ahead. Miss Bridget, Miss Bridget, I have a question. Like, yes, <laughs> tell me all the things. <laughs> that is awesome. But yeah, I think that's I think that's the bigger aspect of it. Conservation like worldwide is just like sit sit down and listen. And just say, hey, what's up? Like, what's your concern? You're here all the time. You tell me. I'm an outsider. So what's up? How can I help? I love these animals. I want to see them around. Do you feel that's the beautiful. same? Can I convince you to? <laughs> Can I convince you to like an otter? <laughs> that is awesome. And then like finding those different ways to be like, okay, well, we'll help you with your nets. Okay, well, they're not really going after that fish. Oh, well, they're really important for your safety too. You don't have to call somebody down here to come test the water. You don't have to do this if they're around. You know that it's safe. So all cool things like that. And I think what um, gets a lot of people too, they, um, I know we talk a lot about not anthropomorphizing animals and giving them human emotions and things like that but sometimes when you do that in different cultures they are like oh wow I didn't know how smart they were I didn't know how well they take care of their family and that's like appealing to them They're like oh well these are 
pretty amazing creatures. We want to protect them too. So there's that aspect too. I can show them. Uh, I brought down one time uh, paintings that our otters made in my zoological facility because I told them about, oh, spring team, but we trained it with paint and canvas instead of poop in the dirt. And so I brought down <laughs> some paintings for them and they loved it. We're like, this is their footprint. You can see what their footprints look like. They're so smart. I can show them videos of their training sessions. Like, wow, I had no idea that otters were that smart. It's like, yeah, it's really cool. Next time you're out fishing and you see otters around, just take time and enjoy and watch them and see like how they're communicating with each other and how they're like hunting together as a team and how they all work together. It's really cool stuff. So then another like probably threat, which is unfortunate, they uh, will go because they love them and collect what they think are orphan otters to be like, this otter was orphaned. We need to protect it and try to give it to somebody who could potentially rehab, re-release it is the thought and the goal because they care. However, the otters, when they're born, are pretty uh, pretty useless. They can't do anything <laughs> on their own. They need their family to do everything. Their eyes aren't open right away, but their family just goes out to go fishing and they come back. So they'll leave the babies in the hole. So they'll be like, oh, this baby was all by itself, like, or was just there and there was no parents around. I didn't see them at all. I waited for a while. I didn't see them. Yeah, because they were had to go a little bit further to go fishing today. They're coming back. Like, don't touch it. <laughs> leave it. I love that you love it, but leave it alone. That kind of thing, which is the same thing that happens with birds falling out of nests or squirrels falling out of nests and rabbits up here where I'm used to it. It's just on a different scale there. So some of that knowledge too of like, oh no, this is how they raise their young and they all participate. They all have to go hunting for fish during the day and then come back and feed them. And being like, they're not orphaned. They're not abandoned. <laughs> leave it. <laughs> just leave it alone. Oh, yeah. This just needs to be so like yeah, the model. So it, can be, it could be helpful and hurtful at the same time. Get them to fall in love with it. And like, okay. Too much love. Too, Too much, much love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. I mean, maybe you've already covered everything, but I would love to give the opportunity to talk about collaboration, which seemed to be like the yeah. last big pillar. Um, of see the giants. So what exactly does that mean? How do you collaborate? Is it with also, it sounded like with maybe some other NGOs as well with local communities. Yeah. So what does that entail? All sorts of things. Like you're going to, you never know who's going to be a really big help when you meet them. So just talk to different people. A lot of times when we're there in the community, we see that there's another research project that's there working on a completely different animal or a film crew that's there trying to get shots for Discovery or Animal Planet or something like BBC, things like that. And for example, there's a project within the community where they want to count the Amazon River turtles because they used to have this big festival in the community every year. It was a turtle festival and they all loved eating these turtles. It was like a, a feast type thing. And then they realized that there's not that many turtles left and not really seen why. So now they're doing a project where they do like basically a head start program. So they go and they collect some of the turtle eggs and they incubate them, raise them up until they're, they're a little bit bigger and can fend for themselves better and then re-release them back. So it's similar to what um, they do in Florida with alligators, giving them a head start, collecting some of the eggs from nests, growing them up to a bigger size, put them out. So that way they have less predators than right off the bat. So 
we've told them like, hey, we're out on the boat, we're out on the river, while we're counting otters, we'll count turtles for you too. So we can help count turtles, and then we can ask other programs that are out there doing birds, like, hey, we're out here looking for otters. If we see you, your bird, we'll let you know. What, what data do you need us to collect for you? So that's the next big thing with our project is um, community-based science. So get citizen scientists out there. So we have posters up for um, people who are there on ecotourism or people who are there just visiting or there for another project. If they're out and they're looking for something else and they see an otter, we're like, hey, just grab that GPS point real quick. Tell me how many otters there were. If you have pictures, awesome. Send them to this email. If you have this, let us know. And it doesn't have to be a lot, but that's going to help the project out because there's more eyes on the river. So more eyes to see pollution, more eyes to see animals are doing, more eyes to see like what potential legal activity is going on and being able to report all that back, having more eyes, more help all around. So it's, it's working with other projects like that, just for the research side of helping each other out, but then also teaming up with other organizations who have the same goals in mind and then are maybe doing other different things and they're going to help our project in one way or another and we can help theirs in one way or another because we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to save the world, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but if we all teamed up a little bit more and not like this is my project versus this is my project, like we're all in the same spot help each other, which is why that um, internet, we called it the first ever international giant otter conference for us in Guyana. We brought in the International Otter Survival Fund from Scotland. They are amazing people, by the way. And then, and they have all sorts of different things just for different species of otter that they do over in uh, the UK. And then we had um, Pablo, who was a neotropical expert from, neotropical otter expert from Mexico. We brought in somebody else who did wildlife clubs. We brought in like different people who are better with artistic type things. Some like vet techs and vets who could do um, like domestic pet clinics because backtracking, another big concern is diseases from the dogs, domestic dogs or people getting into the rivers, getting into the otters. So if we can do things like very basic mange and flea baths, and getting vaccines and getting like essentially frontline and things like that. So they're taking care of their animals, also taking care of the otters. So you can bring in vets to do even spay and neuter events for all the domestic dogs. So there's not a ton of dogs running around that's hard to manage in their community. They were really grateful for that. <laughs> um, lots and lots of different collaborations. So it's that one health approach. And then also just equipment for the school. So just so they can keep learning their education and not have to drop out of school early or different things like that. So collaborating in every aspect of the word, in every little avenue, we kind of touch our hands into every little aspect. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. So is canine distemper a big issue? Is that one of the big things that's Yeah, spread? parvo, distemper. Mm. Um, oh, parvo. Like oh, that. mm -hmm. that's devastating. But a big one now this year to for everybody to think about is COVID-19. So giant otters or all the otters have almost identical, almost the same ACE2 cell receptor that humans do. And that's where COVID binds. So they are just as susceptible of getting COVID as we are. So we have wow. to be really careful and making sure that like, it's not our job to get vaccines down there, but if we can 
somebody knows a friend who knows a friend who says, Hey, if you're traveling down doing these remote clinics, like, could you stop in like, or let us know so we can tell them like, Hey, there's going to be a clinic in this area. They don't have to travel so far to go get a vaccine or be able to go and do X, Y, Z for treatment. Um, because we're, that's going to be a concern. It's not just, uh, COVID came from animals, went to humans, it could go back. So there's been cases seen in certain zoological settings mm. where that happened. Um, and we know it's possible for mustelids, so for otters. So we've got to be really, really wary of that too. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm really glad you brought that up because sometimes we don't think about that or just don't know of examples or yeah. you hear that one random headline where like a tiger, you know, contracted. Right. That's what everybody jugger- thinks of like a tiger yeah. in a zoo got COVID. Yeah. And so they're like, oh, and then like a gorilla in a zoo got COVID and they were able to actually make a vaccine for the gorillas, which was really, really cool. Wow. But we don't have a vaccine for otters. <laughs> so <laughs> So we don't have that yet. And it's not like we could go around vaccinating all the wild otters. That's not going to happen. No. <laughs> but, so what we can do is make sure that the people are staying healthy because the people are going to be the vectors to bring those diseases onto the river. So we can try to make sure that it's not just working with the otters. It's working with the people. It's working with the environment and the pets. So domestic pets, people, environment, making sure it's all in balance and we can help out in However we can, we have different ways that we know how to get things into the community. So we can be like, hey, this guy is a really good transport to get point A to point B. And so just kind of those logistical stuff. So we can aid in just a helping in hand and how we get things down there to help out for the other side of things. So medical and schooling and all that stuff. Wow. So it's big, big collaboration all across the board. If you want to save wildlife you have to also protect humans their pets and the environment it's all of it together yeah it's never one thing it's never Never one one thing thing. it it can't just be one thing (laughs) (laughs) can't be that simple yeah if only if only i know well i could just be like i want to save otters today (laughs) 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 i just want to save you and but apparently i gotta save everything else and then i'll save you My list keeps getting longer. Yeah. <laughs> Just proves how intertwined we are with nature. We exactly. think we're such a separated species, but that's just not true. It's not true. Right. We are part of nature. We are part of ecosystems and we're just as important as yeah, the species and, itself. And another thing people don't think about, everybody refers to the wild. I always try to say there is no the wild. There is no the wild left. It is not a thing. People are everywhere. Even in these super remote communities, there's people around. So we go into dense rainforest. You think there's no people? There's people. There's communities. There's people down there. So you're never getting away from people. There's too many of us. So there is no wild because nothing is untouched. So we got to be able to protect it, protect our everything in our own backyards because we are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's another thing that. that I really like about um, being a zookeeper on top of my conservation work is that I'm able to participate in conservation in multiple ways. So another way that like zoological facilities deal with conservation is through species survival programs. And so for example, giant otters, um, we are, where I work is an accredited zoological facility. So we work with all of the other zoological facilities in the world to ensure 90% genetic variability for the next hundred years for every otter pup born. 
That way, if they go extinct in the wild, it's like an insurance plan of genetically valuable, valuable otters that we can do reintroductions with, which is happening now in Argentina, which is really, really exciting. Oh, wow. So some otters who were born in a zoological setting raised very differently than some of the ones that you would normally see interacting with their keepers. They were not interacting with their keepers. Um, they went to Argentina and they are going to be slowly released back into the wild, doing a breeding program, making sure that there's long-term studies and data on all of them. So we can start to try to repopulate otters in Argentina. But it's not that simple because you have to be able to have the habitat support the otters if you're going to just put them back. So in a lot of areas, we have to make sure that we protect the habitat before we can just say, well, just put otters back in there. Not that simple. So I get to participate in conservation on the ground with trying to protect the habitat and trying to preserve the habitat, as well as the insurance plan side of it in a zoological setting, of making sure they are around for a long time to come. Wow. Talk about feeling foolhearted. You're like, I'm going to yeah, make it's, sure it's, it's you stay fulfilling. on this planet. <laughs> like you will be here. <laughs> no choice. <laughs> Compel or high water, you will, yeah, you you're will be here. Stay. <laughs> so I, I really want to get to one aspect here from my background. So I'm a conservation travel specialist, I guess you can say. And I would love to talk more about this ecotourism aspect of, of yeah. what exactly is ecotourism down there and what is the role that it is playing in this bigger picture for giant otters? Yeah, there's definitely areas where they do it right. And there's definitely areas where they don't. So yep. I know of areas not um, like in other countries for giant otters specifically, where they see giant otters. All these boats have radios to communicate with all the other boats, and they all flock to an area to see the giant otters. And then that can be very disturbing to them, and it could throw off their breeding. Potentially, it could have lots of different issues that way. Um, but it turns out that a lot of those otters are way more used to people because they see more of them. And where, yes, it is detrimental, they're being harassed, they're being followed by a boat, and all those different things from those areas. It's not good. So, and then there's others where you're coming up on otters, you see otters, you cut the engine, you get really quiet. You float over to the river bank on the opposite bank of where they are, and you can silently sit there and take pictures and observe them, and they will keep doing what they're doing. So usually um, what I encounter is uh, giant otters will see us first sometimes instead of us seeing them first. And you hear a, a nice warning, a nice little chuff. So it's, uh, I'll mimic it for you like, so that's just like, awesome. hey, <laughs> hey, I'm here. <laughs> like, my, God, my family's here. So you get a nice chuff, a big periscope. So stick that head up nice and high above the water, expose their throat patch. Like, this is me. This is my territory. I, I got kids around. Like, back up. So you just back up and you're quiet. Give them lots and lots of space until they go back to normal. And then a lot of times they'll just continue doing what they're doing. And you can sit there and take pictures, take video, giving them lots and lots of room. And then after they're left on their own, then you can take off and go keep going again. So that's responsible ecotourism that all of our guys in the field that we've trained them how to do. If you see a sign of otters, you cut your boat engine, you go real quiet, give them lots of space. Your guests are going to have a way better experience. Like you might be a little bit further away from them, but they're not going to just flee. I mean, they can hold their breath 
for a long time. They will go underwater and they will disappear. You will have no idea what direction they went. You're not going to see them for any duration. So trying to be able to train them in nice ecotourism, like, I guess, etiquette, you could say otter etiquette, like this is how you should behave around them and you'll have a better experience. And then you'll get better tips from everybody on your boat because they were <laughs> able to get a photo of an otter or they were able to see them fishing or they were able to see the babies or different things like that. So I'm very fortunate that I work in a community where they notice that and they see that and they're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. We saw how they act when we're on your boat versus when we're just flying by. That was a cool experience. We want to replicate that for our different tours that we have coming through. So like it can be done right. <laughs> they are, they're pretty bold animals. They're at the top of the food chain. They're going to warn you like, hey, I'm here. But as long as you're leaving them alone, they're going to continue what they're doing and leave you alone too. So it can be done right. But a lot of times, unfortunately, in certain areas, it's not. So do you so, have any operators or like any... Partners, so so let's say that anybody listening is interested in going down there or me working in the field, maybe coming down the myself, what would you, you <laughs> I mean, it's kind of what I do. I mean, we, we invite can... people to come with us. So, so am I just going to invite myself? Can I invite myself? Oh, I'm inviting <laughs> you right now. When do you want to go? Well, I'll tell you, uh, whenever uh, we are going uh, again. We haven't okay. been able to travel right now with all of what's happening in the world. It's been hard for me to not be in the field too. But yeah, we definitely bring people with us. So we want to make sure that we're inspiring others. If people are interested and they can come, like they come. So we are happy to have people tag along with us for multiple reasons. But yeah, so where we base out of is in New Picari Village. And if you look it up, it's Cayman House Field Station. Cayman. And you can stay there as a, like, as a tourist. It's called uh, Cayman House. It's in uh, Region 9 of Guyana. And they do it right there. They are awesome. They um, have different programs where they take people out to go participate in Cayman research. So it depends on what the research is at the time. But at one point in time, they were doing gut content studies Ooh. on Cayman. Ooh. So that was really cool. They would uh, very respectfully, very carefully, they know what they're doing. They would catch up a wild Cayman, bring them over to shore, pump their stomach with a little bit of water, turn them upside down. And what comes out, they can like catalog their gut content. So a lot of times they were finding that they were eating snails of all things, which is really kind of cool. They came in, you would think, oh, they're eating all of these other different things. What times are snails? And then they do things where they go to a neighboring community and they can go out and see giant anteaters. Or they have a different tour operator who specializes in fishing in different areas. So they do river drifting trips. So they go up to one area and they just drift down in small john boats throughout the river and are doing birding and doing like seeing arapaima, so big fish and um, lots of other different things like primate. Everybody hopes to see a jaguar, but it doesn't always happen. I was very lucky to see a jaguar, <laughs> but because uh, your cat knows, with my cat knows, my zookeeper knows. I know all the smells because <laughs> I've cleaned them all. <laughs> so, that's why they joke and call me. I have an otter nose because I usually smell the otters before I see them. <laughs> like I smell otter. I've cleaned that poop a lot. <laughs> I know that oily smell. It smells wonderful. We're coming up on some otters. <laughs> like I smell cat. 
I've been peed on by a cat too many times. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's a, basically everybody at Cayman House is awesome. I highly recommend them. And it's going to contribute to the community, which contributes to protecting that community and protecting that environment where the otters are thriving too. So it's all really awesome to find ecotourism that is doing it right, being super respectful of animals and also a really good time. Like the cooks are amazing. The Uh place where you stay, beautiful. It's like thatched roof. There's like two stories of it. It has bathrooms there, which is wonderful when you're in the field to have a flushing (laughs) toilet and a shower. But uh, yeah, it's a beautiful area. The bats are going around at night. Mm -hmm. You wake up to like different um, like parrots singing in the morning, waking you up. And then you go to bed to howler monkeys calling in the distance at night. So it's really, really cool place. Really natural awesome people. Everybody go support Cayman House. They're great. <laughs> well, we might have to talk more about this offline yeah. <laughs> later. I mean, with, with and my And anybody role- else who is listening yes. and you're like, I want to go on a trip with you guys, like, feel free. Reach out to me. I'm not hard to talk to and we will try to make it where anybody can come with us. We are oh, more than happy to get yeah. other people passionate about all the things that we're passionate about and then start doing it all on their own too. Mm. We also love when people do fundraisers for us. We've had people do, we did did growlers for grotters was a thing. So grotter for giant river otter. Oh my God, that's amazing. So it's like a bunch of brewery events where we just teamed up with local breweries and it's a fun time. If anybody wanted to do a growlers for grotters, we (laughs) we got some stuff. (laughs) shameless plug yes i mean come on that's that's what we're all about here you know it's gonna take all of us it takes it literally takes everybody literally takes all of us and just doing all the little things that you can on your own like everything that we already know refuse reduce reuse recycle because we mine for natural resources all over the world so by doing your part here you're going to help out otters in guyana you're going to help out like tigers in another part of the world or rhinos in another part of the world or bats in somewhere else so just do your part and you help out everybody because we're all over the planet yes gosh that was beautiful that was awesome (laughs) i I talk to people a lot during the day yeah you're like i know these awesome spiels they are practiced (laughs) (laughs) i have a i have a lot of really cool people around me and i take different things that i hear from them i'm like that's a cool thing. I'm going to hold on to that. I one. like that nugget. I'm like, oh, that. that's nice. <laughs> I'm just going to steal that. That was beautiful. Yeah. Like, hmm. This will be so, useful. Let, let's shift back to you for a second. Um, so one thing that I really love about this podcast and this whole platform is really showing, one, what we do, but also who we are and yeah. everything we've gone through. So what in what would you say in your journey so far has been the biggest thing you've had to overcome or one of your biggest mm. struggles that you, you might still be dealing with it today or something that was really big in your past that you, you've had to overcome? Um, on a surface level thing is like, like conservation, like we're all in it for good reasons. But then when you really get into the nitty gritty of conservation, you find out a lot of it is politics and politics suck. And I hate dealing with that side of things and be like, 
hey, it would be really easy to do X, Y, Z, but like try to get people to vote on those different things. And not everybody thinks the same way that you do. They have very different point of views. And they're like, oh, well, we can make more money doing this versus that. So politics is not fun in conservation. I wish more people knew ahead of time when you're getting into conservation, you're getting into politics, like it or not, because I don't like politics. So that was one thing that I found out pretty quickly um, with when it comes to politics too, is then trying to get your permits to do different research in a foreign country when politics are in place. And there's maybe somebody who is like, I don't know about this person, they're brand new, or it could be challenging to get different permits or everything like in a, in a smaller community where everybody talks, it can be like, oh, well, I want my permit. So maybe if I say something about them, then I'll get mine and they won't get theirs. Like it's, it's not a all or nothing game, like everybody can work type thing. So sometimes permitting is, is a challenge. Whenever we go to renew permits, it's always like a, who's going to be reviewing this document? Who knows? Not that we would ever do anything questionable, but you still like, just like community saying like, oh, they eat otters, they hunt them, they do this. And you turn out like, no, they don't. <laughs> it's just those word of mouth telephone games sometimes. So that's always frustrating is that nitty gritty stuff like, hey, I need this because I'm going to do this right. But why is it taking forever to get some paperwork through? Paperwork's no fun. Um, yeah, and I think another thing that I've, Luckily, I haven't struggled with too much, but I know a lot of other people who do is getting too bogged down and too depressed because it always seems like the problem is too big. And like, how am I going to tackle this huge problem? Once you think it's one thing, there's so many more other things in play. So I had a, um, I did a, I guess it was a uh, panel discussion for World Otter Day with the International Otter Survival Fund. So I was talking about giant otters. They had other people talking about other things. And uh, somebody asked me as a panelist at the end, like, how do you stay so positive when it sounds like everything's pretty shitty for those <laughs> otters? Like, <laughs> like the pollution and like being hunted and wildlife trafficking and like health issues. Like, how do you stay positive? And my answer to that, and this is like still what I have to tell myself every day, is that positive people are looking for solutions versus if you get too bogged down and you get too negative, it's easier to throw in the towel and say, there's no way I can do this. Like, there's no way I can do it by myself. What's the point? So trying to constantly tell myself, be positive. If you're positive, you're looking for answers or you're looking for solutions and you're going to keep going. You're going to keep getting fueled in that way, which I think having my simultaneous zookeeper of working with otters in a great environment where they're like happy go lucky and I get that every single day it's very rewarding for me working with those otters one-on-one and then being able to do the hard nitty-gritty work of protecting their habitat which is the conservation side of things not to say my zookeeper side isn't hard it definitely has its challenges it has sometimes more challenges than the conservation (laughs) side but yeah I think Trying to find more people to try to stay positive is hard because you can be like, oh, well, there's this issue, this issue, this issue. Like, uh, it's too many things. I give up. You talk too much about negative. I don't see there's a point. What's the point? 
So trying to keep all the conversations like where it's serious, but also light enough where it looks like there's actionable things that could help. Could not agree more with that whole outlook. Oh my God. Yeah. Like you're like speaking from like my heart. Like that's the whole, <laughs> that is, ex- I, that's exactly my philosophy. This is why we philosophy. need to go into the field together. It's Girl, awesome. let's go. <laughs> <laughs> we need to go. This is so up my alley. You don't even know. But seriously, we are going to chat offline because yeah. this is kind of building a whole conservation travel program. So yeah. let's chat. That's um, another thing that we want to do. We want to be able to bring people with us when we go on our trips to support the community and then support the otters. And that's going to fund all of their research and fund their stipends. So we really want to be able to bring people with us when we get back to a point where people can travel again, of course. Right, right. When it makes sense to actually schedule all this stuff, which I mean, yeah, slowly but surely be working in travel. There's a lot of countries that are pretty much just saying, fuck it. Like, we, our economies yeah. have been crushed for so long mm-hmm. and the vaccine is available in enough places and a lot of the people that are traveling are vaccinated. So right. I think a lot, I mean, at least in a lot of the areas that we work in, I'm starting to see some things. I mean, of course, we don't know what, de- what Delta is going to do. Right. But I think it's to the point where everyone's like, I'm so stuck of sitting on my ass at home. And a lot of places are like, we need tourism dollars. It is one of the biggest yeah. industries in our country. So I think that I think it's starting to be a shift. I, and yep. we'll see what happens. Of course, we all need to be safe and, and not put, especially high-risk communities that might not have access to any forms Medical of health care. Um, yep. Yeah, we definitely need to be safe when it comes to that. But yeah, there's definitely a balance of safety versus livelihood. And I think right. some countries are just like, I'm over it. I'm over yeah, it. Especially I'm seeing in areas die. where all of their like economy is based on ecotourism. Exactly. So once that like went away, it got the scary times for a lot of yeah. people. But then at the same aspect, they uh, don't have the medical care that we have. So for instance, in uh, some of the people who have gotten sick, they all have to go to a different town and they're basically kept in a tent type, like a big tent type thing. And they weren't doing anything. They were just basically trying to keep you away from the rest of the population. And so they were saying that they weren't even getting water in some days. They weren't getting food. And so they were getting really sick and they didn't have any care, not even basics, not even like food and water care when they need it. So it's easy on our end when we have like urgent cares and hospitals and doctor's offices like all over the place to think outside of that perspective of like, yes, they need the economy they to boost up in these ecotourism areas. But at the same time, like we need to make sure that we're getting vaccines and healthcare to these areas as well. So I am eager, I am itching to get back into the field, but it's, we're feeling it out with our uh, people on the ground every day. Like, Hey, you're there. You're the ones going through it. What do you guys think? When do you think is a good timeline? Like it's, you tell us because they already have um, they have some film film crews go in there recently, and we heard a lot of people in the community complaining to us, saying, "I can't believe they came here! Like, don't they know it's still everybody's still sick and stuff like that?" Because it's hitting them later, so it's hitting mm, them harder. Which that like, makes sense. Yeah. So the people who are bringing them in are like, 
hurting for money. And then the, it affects everybody in the community too. Cause they're like, well, now we had somebody come in here from overseas and we're all scared and we're afraid that we're going to get sick and then have to go to this other town and like maybe not get the proper health care. So it's feeling out, not just the people bringing you in, but also the rest of the community around it too. So I'm hopeful though. I'm hopeful it'll be really soon. I think we're on yeah. the up and up. I think you'll be there in 2022. Yeah, sure. Easy. I think definitely yeah. by next year, you'll, you'll be there next dry season. I think so too. I think we'll be there in 2022 for sure. We're, I'm just going to try to manifest it. Yeah. I'm yeah. Just, we're just saying, Positivity. It. Just saying it. We're going to be there. <laughs> You're going to be there next dry season. But that's also the great thing about our approach to conservation is we don't have to be there to do this project. Mm. So we've given them Beautiful. all the tools and all the resources that they needed so they can keep it going throughout the pandemic because we don't have to be there. They're not reliant on us. So that's another thing going forward. I know of so many projects, so many conservation projects who are like, oh, we're on halt. We haven't been able to do anything because of COVID because it's just them doing their project right there versus involving all the locals or as many as you can. So I think that was our, our strong suit holding out through this pandemic. It was very, very hard. It was really hard to get funding because people didn't have income that they wanted to spend on like stickers and t-shirts to fund our project or grants all kind of shut down. So, cause they lost their funding. So yeah, being able to build capacity within communities. So all of this work can continue with or without us is uh, probably our thing we're most proud of. You were just being innovative and had no idea that it would be useful yeah. so soon. Like the world would just like <laughs> shut down. <laughs> like, oh, I'm glad we did that. <laughs> yeah, I know so many projects and so much research has completely come to a halt for 18 months. Yeah. Like, it's just at a standstill. One of our other board members reviews grants. And so she goes through all that. And everybody's check-ins for this these past like almost two years now was we couldn't get anything done. We couldn't get anything done because of COVID. So everything's been at a halt. And it's really sad. That means a lot of really awesome projects worldwide, they can't do anything right now. Yeah. Yeah. And we still need answers. And yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's just nothing. You just can't get World there. World still turns. Everybody's still doing all these things, but don't have these answers. Oh, but wow. we need to stay positive. It's going to get better. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. It's That's literally why we, all we, we can, can only do. like preach that, hey, involve all your community because it it could be easier. Hmm. So you have shared so many amazing nuggets this entire time, but I would love to give you a platform and opportunity. If, is there one piece of advice that you would love for anyone listening to take away from this conversation? Yeah. I, I think that the, you don't have to like be a crazy person and like, devote your life to conservation to help out conservation worldwide. And you don't have to do everything all at once. And you don't have to feel guilty about like using a plastic straw like once or something like that. Like just try to try to do a little bit at a time. And if you're more conscious about it, like that's awesome. Like good for you. We shouldn't be shaming other people when they're trying to like bring their reusable bags or they're trying to like support ecotourism in their travels or they're trying to do other different things. Like they're putting in that effort. That's awesome. Like good for you. Awesome. Keep it up. And then expand on that. 
every so often. Maybe you have like a monthly check-in, like this month, I cut out plastic bags. Now this next month, I went to like only reusable bottles. Or I only went to this. And it could be really, really tiny things. You can say, I drove my car less. I put solar panels on my house. Like different things like that. Just keep building and building and building. And it gets easier and easier. It doesn't have to be everything all at once. So I'm a nut job and like we drive an electric car. We have solar panels on our house. <laughs> like we're all crazy over here, which was awesome when we were losing power. I live in an area with hurricanes. We had freeze. I don't lose power at my house because I got solar. That's enough about awesome. solar power. <laughs> so like it doesn't have to be all of that all at once. A lot of people can't afford to be as eco-friendly as they'd like to do because that's also a big factor in it. The little things, little things help out, help out a little bit at a time. And you're going to do awesome. Hmm. Just stay positive. Positive people look for solutions. Heck yeah, we do. There's, yep. there's a solution out there. We just got to find it. It might take some yep. sifting. <laughs> might have to go through some poop every now and then. Yeah. But <laughs> got to do a little sprinkling. <laughs> it's, it's there. It's there. We'll find it. We'll find it. Awesome. So how can someone get a hold of you or the organization if they want to donate, if they want to support, if they have an idea, all the things? All the things. Um, so easy way is to email me. It's Bridget, B-R-I-D-G-E-T-T-E at savethegiants.org. Um, or you can also find that email on our website, which is savethegiants.org. Um, I'm also like on Facebook. We have a Facebook a group for um, Save the Giants. We're on Instagram. We're on like all the social media stuff. Um, TikTok, I'm just starting to get into having a lot of fun there. But this <laughs> challenge, that's not really a place where you can get old of somebody, but it's fun for cool otter content. Um, so yeah, any of those areas, info at Save the Giants will filter into all of our board members' uh, inboxes. So email us message us on Facebook, like, don't be shy. We're happy to talk to anybody. We're happy to bring people in the field with us. Like if you want to support otters, learn about otters, see them in the wild. When we start traveling again, we are more than happy to have anybody come with. The more you can get people to love them, the more people you can get to love them, the better it is for us. So. Awesome. Well, I think that is the perfect way to end this today. So <laughs> thank you so much, Bridget. This has been so much fun. I cannot wait to share with everybody everything about giant otters. Yeah. And I'm excited to go in the field with you soon. This is oh my God, awesome. girl. We're going to go. We're going to go. We're going to go. Oh, such a great conversation. There is one pillar that is vital to the way that Save the Giants works and it's collaboration. And I want to ask you all this and really think about this and send your answer in on the Rewatologist Facebook group or hit me up on Rewatology's Instagram or of course the website. But the question is, how do you feel we can increase collaboration in conservation or the sciences in general? Awesome. Send me your answers. I would love to hear what you think. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.